Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for a conversation. Alice replied, rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have been changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? said the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir, because I'm not myself, you see. I don't see, said the caterpillar. In Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, the caterpillar and Alice discuss change and identity. Alice's adventure has been traumatic. She's undergone a number of shifts in size and had her understanding of reality and the natural order of things undermined. She's conversed with animals, grown to fill the white rabbit's home and been shrunken smaller than a puppy. The white rabbit has taken her for Mary Ann, the housemaid, and she herself has tried to puzzle out whether she is Alice, Mabel or Ada. She remarks, I wonder if I've been changed in the night. Let me think. Was I the same when I got up this morning? I almost think I can remember feeling a little different. But if I'm not the same, the next question is, who in the world am I? When change and subversion leads Alice to a crisis of identity, who better to converse with than a caterpillar? A caterpillar emblematic of total transformation. Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth, where today we are discussing transformation. We as humans are obsessed with transformation because we're always changing. We are babies, children, teenagers, adults, and we are old. We talk about our younger selves in odd contradictory language. That person is who we are and who we were, both self and old self. Throughout our lives, we wonder what will happen when we die, when we undergo that final most bizarre transformation. We have the capacity to speculate, to observe and question what is happening to us, but we are essentially unable to stop it. We are young, we grow, we die. And as such, our culture is rich with ideas of change, of transformation. Insects, like Alice's caterpillar, can be prisms through which we contemplate the notion of transformation. Our culture is redolent with insect transformation. When we are young, we read The Hungry Caterpillar, in which the caterpillar goes on a journey of burgeoning maturity and personal growth culminating in his transformation into a butterfly. In Kafka's Metamorphosis and Cronenberg's The Fly, we see individuals losing their personality through transformations into insect forms. Insects and the notion of transformation are associated in human culture because of the striking changes that are part of an insect's life cycle. An insect's transformation is known as metamorphosis, a word first used in a scientific context in the 1600s. The Roman poem Metamorphoses written in the year 8 CE, begins, I intend to speak of forms changed into new entities. And now we will do just that. To discuss metamorphosis, I spoke with Connor Butler, a scientist and ecologist with an interest in entomology, the study of insects, as well as herpetology, the study of reptiles and amphibians. The herpetology aspect on this podcast is, of course, the bone of contention, bone being the operative word. Connor has worked with beetles in the past, and so we'll be able to root some of our transformation chat in the beetle world, but he now works with frogs. Frogs are transformative creatures, undergoing their own spectacular, albeit vertebrate, transformation. We'll discuss them for comparative purposes later. Hi, Connor. How are you today? I'm good, thanks, Tom. Thank you for inviting me here. It's a pleasure to have you. 
Would you be okay if you sort of outlined for me your professional and your personal relationship with with invertebrates? Sure. Um, so right now I'm a PhD student at the University of Southampton, and I'm actually current, currently studying frogs in um, Malaysia and looking at how they're affected by deforestation. But I feel like my life has been very distinctly marked by several stages in which I was very interested in different things. Um, and this has changed over time. You know, I've metamorphosized my interests, if you will. Um, and I will. <laughs> Um, and right now I've, I've molted into a frog person, but before that I was something quite different. Um, my, well, my first interest as a kid was probably reptiles, to be honest. Um, I liked sort of people like Steve Irwin and dinosaurs and all that stuff. Um, and so I studied zoology, um, as a degree and it was during my degree that I volunteered at a, um, local natural history collection in Winchester. I didn't really know what I signed up for, but, um, when I turned up, they sat me down and put this drawer in front of me. And um, I think for anyone that's ever worked in a natural history mu museum or been to a natural history museum, might know I'm talking about these sort of like dark wooded square drawers that have a glass top um, for displaying insects. And um, they placed this drawer of stag beetles in front of me that they needed relabeling and cataloging in a digital archive. And I was blown away. You know, I've never really appreciated British insects. I've never really seen a stag beetle in the UK. So for me, it was a total change, life-changing experience um, where I really started to appreciate insects. Um, I think, cause I think in the UK, it's very difficult to appreciate um, little tiny creatures because we don't really see them unless you really go looking for them and you know what you're looking for. Um, and I carried on volunteering at this museum and became a, um, a beetle person, I would say. Um, and after university, I got a job out in Singapore working as an environmental educator um, and a field guide. And insects were like in Singapore and Malaysia were like next level. I mean, like if you start to appreciate insects and beetles in the UK and then you go to the tropics, like it's again, this whole like life changing experience where you're like, whoa. <laughs> um, and after a few years, um, I was approached and asked if I wanted to do any survey work um, for an environmental consultancy. And I was like, yeah, I could definitely do with the extra money, but um, I'm not really sure what I could survey. I mean, because the diversity out there is incredible. Um, I, I'm nowhere near an expert in anything. But I had this book of frogs of Singapore, and there's about 30 species of frogs there. And I thought, you know, they have got nice pictures. They've got nice calls that you can recognize, put on your phone. So I was like, yeah, I can probably survey frogs. I mean, how hard can it be? I could probably wing that. Um, so I started doing frog surveys. And um, they then offered me a full-time job because apparently I could blag it enough that um, they thought that I was qualified. And so I then started doing frog surveys and um, eventually then started to do a PhD looking at frogs in Malaysia, um, which is what I'm doing now. But I've definitely changed my interests quite a lot. I'm sort of a person that um, likes to always be doing something new um, and changing, if you will. With insects... The word metamorphosis describes the transformation between a juvenile and an adult. Some insects undergo incomplete metamorphosis, or hemimetabolism, and some go through a complete metamorphosis, or holometabolism. Insects can be broadly split into these two groups, with different orders of insects undergoing a different kind of metamorphosis, as we've touched on in some previous episodes. For example, bugs, dragonflies, mantids and grasshoppers go through incomplete metamorphosis, 
with the young insect resembling a smaller, immature and wingless form of the adult. As the insect grows, it sheds its exoskeleton, shedding its skin to reveal progressively mature forms. Insects like butterflies, beetles, flies and wasps go through a more striking, complete metamorphosis. They are holometabolous. Holometabolous insects go through complete transformation by way of an intermediate stage. These insects all begin life in a larval form. This we might call a caterpillar, a maggot or a grub, depending on which order we're discussing. The body shape of different larvae varies, but it would probably be fair to say they are roughly worm-like and always wingless. Again, think of a caterpillar or a maggot. The larval form of an insect cannot reproduce but can feed. At this stage of an insect's life, it needs to feed extensively in order to gain the energy to transition to the next stage of life. Think of caterpillars, filmed at accelerated speeds, making their merry way through cabbages. When the larva is ready, it will need to enter the pupal stage of its life. For a caterpillar, its pupal form is sometimes called a chrysalis. The pupa is an outwardly inactive form, which is taken on by the insect and within which it will develop into an adult. You might think of Metapod from Pokemon. It may at this stage spin a silky protective covering for itself called a cocoon. Pupae do not feed and are broadly motionless. The appearance of the pupal form does vary among insects. Some are like hardened parcels or shells, without any visible hint as to the adult insect which will emerge. Some pupae already resemble the adult form of the insect. There's also um, insects that don't have any metamorphosis, and we call this ametabolous. Um, so these are sort of primitive insects such as springtails and silverfish. Um, silverfish are kind of like, sometimes you find them in your garage or like if you have basements or old buildings, they kind of live and feed on sort of rotting things. I saw it at a hospital once. <laughs> it's encouraging that they have yeah. heads of hygiene. Um, but th- yeah, these silverfish, they don't have any, they undergo very little change over the course of their life. So we know that the hemometabolous insects, the adult form and the juvenile form, and the kind of all the intermediate stages, it's living a pretty similar life. It's kind of, it, it, it's pretty set in its path. Whereas a holometabolous insect, like a, uh, like a butterfly, like a beetle, the juvenile and the adult live very different lives. And I wondered, why is this, is this useful to the insect to have its juvenile form and the adult form living a different lifestyle. Yeah, I would say there definitely is an evolutionary um, benefit to it um, or an adaptive benefit to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't have existed. Um, and I think in the case of, let's say, butterflies, uh, the caterpillars are feeding on leaves, on vegetation, whereas the adults are flying around, feeding on um, pollen, nectar, and um, very different food sources. And that means that they're not directly competing with each other. Um, If you think about, um, let's say, elephants, for example, you know, elephants, they feed small elephants, big elephants, they eat the same thing. And often there's this competition for food, and it could mean that the juveniles die out because the adults eat the food, they don't get to it. Um, And so by separating your juvenile food source with your adult food source, um, there's no competition. And it means that the juveniles have a higher chance of reaching adulthood. Um, but obviously there are also you know, complications with this. So for example, um, when I worked as, I used to work as an environmental consultant in Singapore doing surveys and we sort of assess how can we decrease the impact to wildlife. And part of it was looking at butterflies and thinking, okay, we need to plant both, um, make sure we sort of conserve both 
the food of the larval form of the butterfly and also um, enough flowers um, for the adult. So at the, at the larval stage, caterpillars can be very picky about the species of plant that they feed on and that the adults will lay the eggs on. It could only have maybe one or two host plant species that they'll they'll grow up on. And so we need to make sure that you know that habitat is conserved as well as then having enough food for the adults. So because of that, they can be um, a risk of, of extinction because they are very specialized in their larval um, food sources. Um, but, you know, obviously without humans, they do quite well because there's reduced competition. But with um, human impact, um, they're also at risk because of this. Having looked over some different ways in which insects undergo transformation, let's have a practical, specific example of some insect life cycles. In terms of a beetle, um, beetles, they have this complete change, this complete metamorphosis. So um, the female beetle, the adult, will generally lay, you know, maybe 100 small eggs. And these eggs could be deposited in decaying leaves, rotten wood or dung. Um, There's also uh, some beetles that will keep their eggs inside and give birth to live larvae so they've um, okay yeah they've discovered this uh, longhorn beetle in borneo that will give birth to to live young which is pretty cool um but i think that's a that's a rarity really um so after these eggs have been laid the larvae then will begin to grow um but as they grow they'll discard the outer coverings of the body um and this is called molting and for beetles this could occur maybe between seven to ten times before the larvae will enter this pupil stage now, the, the pupil stage is where um, the greatest change in the form will take place. So this worm-like larvae um, will cocoon itself and lay dormant. And it will then begin to take the shape of the adult beetle. And the time that it's laying dormant could vary from months to years in some species. And often this is sort of maybe over winter time, over the time where there's not much feeding to be done anyway. So better to just lay dormant and uh, wait for the spring for the food to come out. Um, but there's there's some pretty cool examples of, of this pupil stage lasting a long time. So um, there's some examples of um, wood-boring longhorn beetles um, and um, jewel beetles, which um, the larva have emerged after 51 years in a, in a pupil dormancy. Christ. Yeah, so, so they're North American species, and I guess that's just an adaptation to waiting for maybe better a better climate but waiting for the food to come out i don't know maybe they just were lazy and wanted to sleep a little bit longer yeah one sympathizes <laughs> um so after this pupil stage this you know this larvae has has become dormant in a cocoon and its body has changed into the adult form it then emerges and generally all they want to do is reproduce lay eggs and start the cycle again um i think a lot of beetles will still eat as adults but um some other insects and moths for example some moths um, don't have mouth parts as adults i think the majority of beetles do from what i know it, it, you mentioned um hemometabolous insects ones that so a hemometabolous insect changes it's not like a a drastic change is that right it's kind of it starts off looking pretty much like its adult form and just grows. Yeah, so with, with hemimetabolous insects, um, they go through a gradual change um, as the, they turn into adults. So immature forms of these insects are called nymphs. 
and they'll ja gradually increase in size and change form. Um, but generally, the behavior of the adult and the larvae are not as drastically different as those insects which undergo complete metamorphosis. I wanted to ask you about certain larvae with certain insects receive a degree of parental care um, or the eggs might receive a bit of parental care. You specialize in, in dung beetles, is that right? To, to some degree. I like dung beetles. Um, I, I, did a, I used to volunteer at the Naturalist Museum in Oxford um, and um, they did a lot of work in dung beetles there, which I was involved with um, and I got really into them. So I kind of wondered, do beetle larvae ever receive parental care from, from the parent? Uh, yes, yeah, so to some degree. And maybe I can talk a bit more about, about dung beetles, so I know um, slightly sure. more about that. Um, so just a quick intro to dung beetles. There are three main groups. So you have um, rollers, tunnelers, and dwellers. So um, rollers, these are dung beetles that form a bit of dung into a ball. They roll it away and they bury it. Um, so this is what people think of when they think of dung yeah, beetles. Yeah, exactly um, what I was thinking. Yeah, but sadly, we don't have these in the UK. So they're mainly oh. in, in the tropics, yes, at times. Um, but these these rollers, so the balls that they make are either used by the female to lay her eggs in, and that's called a brood ball, um, or as food for the adults to eat. So then um, tunnelers, um, and we do have these in the UK, um, they land on something like a cow pad, and they just dig down into the cow pad and then directly into the soil below, and they bury a portion of that dung in the, in the tunnel directly underneath the dung pad. And then um, the last one is dwellers. These are only small dung beetles, and they actually live directly in the, in the dung. So if you go into the fields, um, like I sometimes do, and look in a cow dung, if you scrape it open, you'll probably see little, little tiny sort of beetles in there, and they're what we call dwellers. They live in the dung, and they lay their eggs and raise their young there. Um, so in terms of um, sort of the breeding stuff, um, maybe I'll talk about rollers because they're sort of what we think of, yeah, with dung beetles. Yeah, actually, rollers, side note. So when we think of um, Egyptian history, they actually have a lot of dung beetles in their um, in their culture. So they used to think that the dung beetles would roll these dung balls across the desert, you know, and they would see it disappear just as the sun emerges and vanishes every day. And so they actually had a sun god um, with the face of a dung beetle, which I think is awesome because I think if I it is, yeah, to pick a, if I had to pick a religion, I know where I'm leaning, <laughs> dung beetle god. Yeah, so back to breeding. So you know, after dung beetles, they um, a male and a female will meet at a pile of dung. It's pretty romantic, um, and um, the male will offer the female this sort of giant-sized ball of dung, and um, if she accepts this gift, um, they will roll it away together, or the female will ride on top of the ball if she's feeling lazy. Um, and when they find this sort of a soft place to bury it, the, um, they'll dig down and uh, bury it in the hole together. Um, and that's generally as much care as the male will give. Um, but in some species, the female will stay. She'll make a few more balls, um, lay eggs in each one, and then she'll sort of like bury that. And some others will stay with this brood ball for a, a couple of months, tending to the larvae. Um, but that's about it in terms of parental care. So in, in the UK on the weekends, if I'm if I'm looking to get some fresh air and, and find some dung beetles, I'll often flip open a, a, a sort of cow pat or something, and sometimes you'll see a hole directly underneath it. Um, it's probably about the the width of one of your fingers, 
but they can go down sort of a couple of meters sometimes. They get really deep tunnels they dig. But sometimes you can kind of, if you stick your finger down and they haven't dug far enough, you can find like the male and the female dung beetles still sitting there trying to dig a tunnel down. But that's just about as much as the, the parental care that dung beetles give, I think. Um, but but there's a few other um, beetles that do have pretty cool parental care. So there's burying beetles. Um, so these are super cool beetles. And they, as the name would suggest, um, do something with burying. So often they'll find a dead animal, and that's usually a, a small bird or a small mouse. And then they will, a male and a female will, will, um, will mate. They'll dig a hole beneath that dead mouse. They'll remove all of the fur. They'll cover the body of the mouse in, mouse in this sort of antifungal oral secretion to delay its decay. And they sort of drag it down underground and bury it and that probably takes about eight hours so it's pretty impressive that these yeah beetles can can bury a whole whole mouse underground how um, big are the beetles compared I to mean, the they're, they're, they're quite small i mean if you think of like a, if you've seen like a ground beetle in your garden yeah. they're sort of they're sort of that sort of size really um obviously super powerful um to be able to drag it and dig that much but they they have parental care because often the male and the female will stay um, underground in this little mouse house and they'll sort of hand feed their offspring mouth to mouth sort of like birds in a nest made of a dead mouse it's, <laughs> it's somehow disgusting and beautiful at the same time I'm not quite sure where it lands but so they, to sum up they are digging a hole beneath the rotting corpse and then they are regurgitating rotting flesh into their offspring's mouth yeah yeah it's sort of beautiful. Well, it's different. And I, you'd be, I imagine that a lot of people could get quite sniffy about like, the, that we shouldn't find that slightly funny or enjoy the fact it's a bit gross. It is a bit gross, but it's, it is beautiful. It's, it's just a different way of doing things. It's not what I would do. Yeah, the diversity of life. Culturally speaking, we can view transformation as symbolic of personal growth. The hungry caterpillar transformed after a journey of discovery and developing a sense of maturity. He eats, suffers, and then learns restraint. Many cultures associate the butterfly with the soul, even the departing soul. It's easy to see how the transformation of a relatively plain caterpillar into a butterfly forms a potent metaphor for those seeking to find meaning in what will follow death, envisioning their mortal lives as a pale imitation of what will follow. Or to be less morbid, butterflies can reflect this idea that we can become something more, something greater, something that spreads its wings. On the other hand, through insect transformation, we also express ideas of anxiety, the loss of individuality, and the loss of our humanity. Insects can often be emblematic of filth, pestilence and infection, and so a transformation from a human form to an insect form can be representative of the ultimate degradation of the self. In Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, Gregor Samsa awakes one day and finds he's been transformed into an insect, usually thought of as a beetle or a cockroach. A travelling salesman, Samsa initially reflects only on the inconvenience of his transformation, struggling to leave his bed. He grows more distant from his family, who he's no longer able to support, and the part of him that was Gregor ebbs away. His family can't understand him, and they feed him rotting food. Samsa takes on more and more characteristics of his new insect form, crawling on the ceiling, revolting those around him. He comes to see himself as a burden, and succumbs to starvation. This story is subject to much criticism and interpretation, but at its core, we see an individual losing their role in life, losing their humanity and personhood. 
This is often tied to the grinding monotony of Samsa's work. The system in which he exists has deprived him of his humanity, reducing him to an insect, pestilent and repellent. The story could also be seen to reflect our fear of a personal downfall, or even the loss of oneself within the world of work. In David Cronenberg's The Fly from 1986, a remake of a 1958 film, Jeff Goldblum is a scientist who makes the big mistake of fusing himself genetically with a fly. As the film goes on, Goldblum's body and mind degenerate, and he becomes more fly than man. His transformation is visceral, disturbing. Jeff Goldblum rots on screen, losing his sanity, losing what makes him him, as he becomes the brundle fly. The film plays on the fear we all feel of our body's failure, our fear of pain and illness. We worry about losing who we are physically and mentally as we age. In The Fly, Goldblum is fused with the fly because a fly is an animal small enough to realistically sneak into his teleportation pod, but also because a fly is symbolic of decay and unwantedness and absolute inhumanity. To become a fly is to be utterly degraded. If in the film Goldblum had fused with a grasshopper, the film would be a laugh. He'd hop about and he'd play a violin and we'd all think he was a legend, but he doesn't. He becomes a fly, a creature we think of when we think about rotting bodies, feces, grubbiness. It's a world we're afraid to enter, but in some respects, will. Here's something interesting about the fly. At the end of the film, Gina Davis smacks Jeff Goldblum and his jaw comes off, which is rough. But then Jeff Goldblum, who is now a raw, scabby monster, begins to fall apart. He splits and we see a creature emerge, shedding Goldblum like an insect molting its skin or breaking out of its chrysalis. So then we have to ask ourselves, was the Jeff Goldblum that was speaking a moment ago a distinct entity from the creature within him? Has he finally become the fly or has he been a chamber within which the fly has developed? Is the fly a new creature or is that still Jeff Goldblum? Well, let's look then at real flies and think about this question of the individual. We have a maggot, which then becomes a pupa from which emerges the fly. Now, it's easy to think of the pupa as a sort of second egg, but it's not that. The pupa is the insect. The maggot, which squirmed and wriggled, darkens and stills and hardens and has become a pupa. When a caterpillar becomes a pupa, the caterpillar skin is shed and we see that inside that animal, which was crawling moments earlier, the pupa has formed. The pupa is the animal. And then, after it's developed, the adult emerges from the pupa, bursting from the pupal exoskeleton, which is now redundant. It's difficult to come to terms with the transition. The pupa is the animal, and yet the adult emerges from it. The exoskeleton, which must be shed for the insect to develop, becomes redundant at each stage of the process. But in the days before a transition, we have that strange time in which the new creature has already been largely assembled within the exoskeleton of its previous form. So, at the climax of the fly, in theory, though we see the humanoid outer shell of Jeff Goldblum, Jeff has become the brundle fly within the old skin. If we were to assume that he's going through a typical insect metamorphosis, though he does not pupate, then in the time before we see the final form of brundle fly, the outer shell, which looks like a knackered Jeff Goldblum, has become redundant. Inside that shell, which looks like Jeff, is the new Jeff. There was no second individual growing inside him. He was essentially growing within himself or within the shell that resembled him. That said, it's a film and it's meant to be a laugh and we don't need to worry too much about the actual biological process. The point of Jeff Goldblum's transformation in The Fly is that he's losing his humanity. 
becoming something new. So then you might wonder, is that a worry for a maggot? If you were friends with a maggot, would you lose your friend when the maggot pupated and became a fly? If we treat the maggot as an individual, what is left of that individual after the process of pupation and metamorphosis? Well, scientists studying insects seem to have evidence that the experiences, the memories of a larva are retained in the adult insect. Housefly maggots raised in a specifically scented sawdust maintained their preference for that odour as adults, whilst control groups found the scent distasteful. It seems to show that the maggot's experience informed the preference of the adult. In a similar experiment, scientists exposed tobacco hornworm caterpillars to the smell of ethyl acetate, a chemical used in nail varnish removers, alongside a mild electric shock. Caterpillars are typically indifferent to this smell, but learn to associate it with the discomfort of the shock and would therefore avoid it. After pupation, this aversion to ethyl acetate was retained in the adult moth. This would suggest that memory is something which is retained despite the breaking down of the caterpillar body and its reassembly as an adult. The larva is, in so much as we can say so, the same individual retaining preference and experience. Okay, here we are, at the precipice. We're going to have to talk about vertebrates. In all seriousness, they're interesting, and I do like frogs a great deal. I know it's drifting from the podcast's invertebrate theme, but it's exciting and, I think, justifiable. Yeah, let's shoehorn some frogs in here. Let's do it. So I, I've made the executive decision that I'm allowing frogs on the principle that we can compare them to invertebrates. They eat invertebrates and they're therefore related. And also, you mentioned that you were, as, as when you were young, you were into lizards and that's kind of your way in. I feel like there's a certain category of animal that feels kind of alternative and yes. people get it you know there is a certain kind of person that's really into lizards and insects and snakes and things like that and turns their nose up at horses and things frogs i would say fit firmly into the the grungy half of of wildlife enthusiasm so as such we'll take them on board so how does a how does a frogs because a frog changes from a You've got your frog spawn, you've got your tadpole, you've got your frog. Alongside the, the butterfly, it's the frog life cycle that we teach kids about. These are kind of the two big uh, showpieces of metamorphosis that we like to talk about. So how is, a, how is a frog's metamorphosis different from an insect's metamorphosis, or is it the same process? As you said, frogs have an egg, they have a tadpole, which is the, the larval stage, and then they have an adult. So the, the tadpoles are generally aquatic herbivores whereas the frogs are terrestrial carnivores and so the, you know this allows the larvae and the juvenile to exploit different ecological niches they they can feed on different things and that's the benefit there um so the biggest difference between amphibians and insects is that um there isn't this dormant pupil stage and, and obviously we've talked about um insects that undergo incomplete metamorphosis that also lack this pupil stage but um so the transition between the larval and the adult stage in frogs is, is more gradual and sort of transitional whereas something like a butterfly um when it turns into a pupa it's insights pretty much turn to goo and reconfigure and boom it's suddenly a, a butterfly um so tadpoles they don't um dissolve their body into mush like a butterfly does but they do um digest it in a sort of less spe spectacular way um, so um, 
uh, tadpoles, they, they are sort of like a... Everyone looks knows what a tadpole looks like. I don't have to explain tadpole. <laughs> but when they do transition into um, an adult, you know, they grow arms and legs and um, they will lose their tail and they'll lose their gills. Um, and this is a process called apoptosis. So this is um, called programmed cell death. And so the cells that they don't need anymore will die essentially and then these dead cells are cannibalized for energy and raw materials to make other cells so yeah their tails are broken down and used to make their developing legs yeah and the similar thing happens with their gills which disappear as the tadpole begins to develop air breathing lungs so you know metamorphosis the principle is the same it's so that they can occupy different different niches but it's less drastic than than a butterfly for example it's more easy for our puny human minds to sort of wrap our heads around we can see the stages we like seeing these sort of transitions yeah. um but there's but it's it's not quite as simple there are some weird ones as well um so my research is in um, malaysia and we have some frogs there that um, undergo direct development and so what direct development is um is where an f- adult frog will lay eggs on land and when this hatches, it completely skips this free swimming larval stage um, and is a miniature frog. It's a miniature adult. It skips the tadpole stage altogether. And so these eggs are often laid in, in sort of damp leaf litter um, to prevent them from drying out. But this means that sort of the, this species is less dependent on, on rainfall and when the rain is going to fall and the patterns. Because, of course, if it suddenly rains... Often that is a cue for lots of amphibians to breed, but if it then quickly dries up, all of the eggs and larvae will will die. So um, some species have, have evolved this this workaround where they just skip that tadpole stage altogether and just hatch as mini frogs. And does the does the egg still look like still look like frog spawn, or are we talking like I've not a, actually a shelled egg? Yeah, no, not a shelled egg. I imagine the the membrane of the egg is probably thicker so it could withstand a bit more dryness um but i think they're more sort of individual eggs maybe folded in between some leaves and not really this sort of bubbly frog spawn um but they're quite understudied we don't really know much about them really um but th- there's also um amphibians that um produce live young as well so um there's certain salamanders that um the fertilized eggs will develop inside the mother's overduct and um, will then give birth to um, fully metamorphosized juveniles. Um, I, I don't think that there's tadpoles inside them. I guess they must just somehow develop. I, I don't love know the idea there would be, though. <laughs> yeah, great, isn't it? Little tadpoles swimming around. And then there's, uh, there's Sicilians. So a lot of people don't know about Sicilians, but Sicilians are worm-like amphibians. They don't really have arms and legs they just look like a massive worm and actually there's if you google them there's quite a lot of phallic looking pictures of them so i reckon if you pause it now google cecilian um, no not maybe not not in your workplace because they they can look a bit <laughs> i've had to i've had to have it okay i've been autocorrected. oh yeah god they're quite phallic yeah they are good laugh though Great laugh. Yeah. So, so Sicilians, super cool. Very, 
very hard to study because they often live um, in leaf litter and soil. They're sort of burrowing, so they're very hard to find. But they are also very um, dedicated parents. They um, they can give birth to live young, quite a lot of the species. But they're so dedicated that they let their offspring scrape off and eat the outer layer of their own skin. And you know, they don't even complain about it. I mean, it's no skin off their back. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah Sotilian's super cool. And I really want to see one one day. Because I need to root um, frog chat and Sicilian chat in the invertebrate world, I'm going to do some little com- comparing and contrasting questions. Just quick fire. Is that okay? Sure. Right. Sure. Would you rather be a tadpole or a grub? Tadpole or a grub? I would rather be a grub. Why would you rather be a do grub? Do you want to know why? Oh, okay. Right. Okay. Um, right. So in particular... I would probably want to be a dung beetle, okay? So I want you to imagine that you are a dung beetle for a second, okay? Mm-hmm. So just you know, close, close your eyes, imagine that. From the first moments of your life, you, you wake up and you're inside this dark, moist ball of, I mean, let's say chocolate cake for this example. So you're in this ball okay. of chocolate cake. Yeah. It's, it's dark, it's warm, it, it feels safe. Um, as you start to move, you breathe in and you smell this cake and like, whoa, what a smell, like... Everyone loves chocolate cake. Mm. And so you get to spend your childhood just eating that chocolate cake. You know, whenever you're hungry, just roll over, eat the chocolate cake. And, you know, when that cake is finished, you, you basically then have a long nap, maybe over winter. No one really likes winter anyways. And, you know, this nap is essentially puberty for beetles. Um, I imagine if you could just sleep over, sleep over, sleep off. <laughs> Sleep over puberty, wake up as an adult. Wow, the dream. Uh, anyways, you wake up and you're an adult. You decide to stretch your legs um, and you dig upwards so you reach the surface. Now, as you climb out of your burrow, you look around and on the wind, you catch a scent. It's that fresh hot cake you remember from your childhood. And so you just start flying towards it um, and you chase down that cake. And when you see it, you just dive straight into it head first. You eat as much cake as you want. And then when you get bored of it, or it gets too old, you just fly around until you catch the scent of another cake. And that's basically your life as a dung beetle, just flying around and eating cake. Um, if, if dung beetles ate cake, which they don't. But. You skipped over the fact you've got access to flight. Very much in favour <laughs> of the idea of existing within and eternally seeking, you know, dung out in the old, in the wild. Yeah. So And also... The the idea of like frogs, they eat small things, right? Mm. They eat little small things. Whereas dung beetles, they literally dive into this biggest pile of food they've ever seen. Like, and I think that is like such a better way to live. If I could just spend my life diving into cake, I mean, what a life. Yeah, absolutely. So could you let us know what you're up to at the moment in terms of your ecological work, what you're research project is focusing on and what's next for you well um right now i'm supposed to be in peninsula malaysia doing lots of field work in the in the forest i'm supposed to be installing pitfall traps and sound recorders and doing lots of night surveys but alas i am um not i am in um oxford at the moment at my parents house (laughs) i was i was supposed to have moved to malaysia for a year in mid-march and packed up all my suitcases moved out of my my rented um room and the day of my flight malaysia closed the border um to foreigners so i am 
I, I, I this year has been a bit of a setback. So I put my PhD on pause until travel is possible. But it, when everything is better, and um, who knows when that is? Sometime next year, hopefully, I will continue with my field work. I'll go out to Malaysia for a year, and I'll be um, surveying amphibians in the montane forests of Peninsular Malaysia. So montane forests, um, which is what my research group is focused on, are high elevation forests. You know, forests at the top of mountains. Sometimes they're called cloud forests because they are covered in this sort of layer of, mm. of cloud and fog. They're pretty cool forests. Lots of moss on all the trees. Um, lots of sort of gnarled, curled trees. Very cool. Um, so I'm looking at frogs there and particularly how they're affected by agriculture. So we're surveying frogs in lots of different habitat types, lots of different types of of agricultural method and trying to work out which type of agriculture is better for biodiversity because not all types of farming are as bad as others um, and obviously we need to have farming people in living so how can we make farming better and that's essentially what my lab group are trying to, to find out so i'm studying frogs someone else is studying birds someone else is studying um bats we just had a new student that's going to be studying moths there so they'd be a good person to talk to <laughs> um you should talk to them instead of me <laughs> but um yeah so um that's essentially what i'm trying to do and so hopefully um yeah hopefully next year i'll be uh if you follow me on instagram or something i'll hopefully be posting photos in the forest and not just in my my childhood bedroom would you like to um would you like to throw out the the instagram handle uh, sure. So um, it's Connor um, hyphen the hyphen ecologist, Connor the ecologist with the words separated by hyphens. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for talking to me about <laughs> no Beatles and, and Kermit and metamorphosis and cake. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate that it's a, a Saturday night. I'm sure you've got better things to do. Although given the lockdown, given how things are going at the moment, maybe you don't. But I, I do not. I absolutely <laughs> do not. <laughs> thank you. But thank you very much for agreeing to talk to me. Well, thanks again to Connor Butler for joining me to discuss transformation. It's essentially impossible to understand what it must be like to experience life from the perspective of any non-human animal, not to mention the notion of going through complete metamorphosis. Yet, we do grow and we do change. I view my younger self with equal measures of disdain and fondness. He was me, and yet... Current me is entirely different, with a different worldview, different attitudes, different beliefs. Different attitudes towards fashion, thank Christ. It's an unfathomable thing, metamorphosis, and something we continue to strive to understand. I can't say that thinking about caterpillars, flies, or even frogs gives me any great perspective on my personal development, but I find it an utterly engaging topic, and it's interesting to think about. We do incline as people to having a an obsession with the passage of time and with our ageing and our development, but hopefully my mind and body aren't on the turn quite yet. I hope that you're not uh, becoming a fly and that you'll listen again next time. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Hatton. Additional voices by Molly McCown. My thanks again to Connor Butler, a fantastic scientist and the first person I've interviewed who I've actually met in real life and had a lovely drink with. If you'd like to write in, please do so at grubbinginthefilth at gmail.com or look up Grubbing in the Filth on Twitter or Instagram. 
Until next time, I hope that you retain your preference for smell of sawdust, even as you burst free of your pupil form and become a fly. Bye. What, what's your... You've got the frog chorus. You've got Mr. Todd. What other <laughs> fictional frogs are there? Um, Jeremy um, Fisher from Beatrix Potter. What's the, uh, that, that puppet frog? Oh, my God. Oh, Kermit. Kermit. How did I forget Kermit? <laughs>